Hello, and welcome to Bygone Tales, episode 16. This is technically our Valentine's Day episode, so I would like to dedicate this episode to my wife. We have a very limited amount of time, so without further ado, let's get into the stories. We have one story by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and one story by William Hope Hodgson. I hope you enjoy. The Ring of Toth by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle Mr. John Vassitart Smith, FRS of 147A Gower Street, was a man whose energy of purpose and clearness of thought might have placed him in the very first rank of scientific observers. He was the victim, however, of a universal ambition, which prompted him to aim at distinction in many subjects rather than preeminence in one. In his early days, he had shown an aptitude for zoology and for botany, which caused his friends to look upon him as a second Darwin. But, when a professorship was almost within his reach, he had suddenly discontinued his studies and turned his whole attention to chemistry. Here, his researches upon the spectra of the metals had won him his fellowship in the Royal Society. But, again, he played the coquette with his subject, and, after a year's absence from the laboratory, he joined the Oriental Society and delivered a paper on the hieroglyphic and demotic inscriptions of El Cab, thus giving a crowning example both of the versatility and the inconsistency of his talents. The most fickle of wooers, however, is apt to be caught at last, and so it was with John Vansittart Smith. The more he burrowed his way into Egyptology, the more impressed he became by the vast field which it opened to the inquirer, and by the extreme importance of a subject which promised to throw a light upon the first germs of human civilization and the origin of the greater part of our arts and sciences. So struck was Mr. Smith that he straightway married an Egyptological young lady who had written upon the Sixth Dynasty, And, having thus secured a sound base of operations, he set himself to collect materials for a work which should unite the research of Lepsius and the ingenuity of Champillion. The preparation of this magnum opus entailed many hurried visits to the magnificent Egyptian collections of the Louvre, upon the last of which, no longer ago than the middle of last October, he became involved in a most strange and noteworthy adventure. The trains had been slow and the channel had been rough, so that the student arrived in Paris in a somewhat befogged and feverish condition. On reaching the Hotel de France in the Rue Lafayette, he had thrown himself upon a sofa for a couple of hours, but finding that he was unable to sleep, he determined, in spite of his fatigue, to make his way to the Louvre, settle the point which he had come to decide, and take the evening train back to Dieppe. Having come to this conclusion, He donned his greatcoat, for it was a raw, rainy day, and made his way across the boulevard d'Italienne and down the avenue de l'Opera. Once in the Louvre, he was on familiar ground, and he speedily made his way to the collection of papyri which it was his intention to consult. The warmest admirers of John Vansittart Smith could hardly claim for him that he was a handsome man. His high beaked nose and prominent chin had something of the same acute and incisive character which distinguished his intellect. He held his head in a bird-like fashion, and bird-like, too, was the pecking motion with which, in conversation, he threw out his objections and retorts. 
As he stood, with the high collar of his greatcoat raised to his ears, he might have seen from the reflection in the glass case before him that his appearance was a singular one. Yet it came upon him as a sudden jar when an English voice behind him exclaimed in very audible tones, What a queer-looking mortal! The student had a large amount of petty vanity in his composition, which manifested itself by an ostentatious and overdone disregard of all personal considerations. He straightened his lips and looked rigidly at the roll of papyrus, while his heart filled with bitterness against the whole race of traveling Britons. Yes, said another voice, he really is an extraordinary fellow. Do you know, said the first speaker, one could almost believe that by the continual contemplation of mummies, the chap has become half a mummy himself. He has certainly an Egyptian cast of countenance, said the other. John Vansittart Smith spun around upon his heel with the intention of shaming his countrymen by a corrosive remark or two. To his surprise and relief, the two young fellows who had been conversing had their shoulders turned towards him and were gazing at one of the Louvre attendants who was polishing some brasswork at the other side of the room. "'Carter will be waiting for us at the Palace Royale,' said one of the tourists to the other, glancing at his watch as they clattered away, leaving the student to his labors. "'I wonder what these chatterers call an Egyptian cast of countenance,' thought John Vansittart Smith, and he moved his position slightly in order to catch a glimpse of the man's face. He started as his eyes fell upon it. It was indeed the very face with which his studies had made him familiar. The regular, statuesque features, broad brow, well-rounded chin, and dusky complexion were the exact counterpart of the innumerable statues, mummy cases, and pictures which adorned the walls of his apartment. The thing was beyond all coincidence. The man must be an Egyptian. The national angularity of the shoulders and narrowness of the hips were alone sufficient to identify him. John Vansittart Smith shuffled towards the attendant with some intention of addressing him. He was not light of touch in conversation, and found it difficult to strike the happy mean between the brusqueness of the superior and the geniality of an equal. As he came nearer, the man presented his side face to him, but kept his gaze still bent upon his work. Vansittart Smith, fixing his eyes upon the fellow's skin, was conscious of a sudden impression that there was something inhuman and preternatural about its appearance. Over the temple and cheekbone, it was as glazed and as shiny as varnished parchment. There was no suggestion of pores. One could not fancy a drop of moisture upon that arid surface. From brow to chin, however, it was cross-hatched by a million delicate wrinkles, which shot and interlaced as though nature, in some Maori mood, had tried how wild and intricate a pattern she could devise. We oui, est la collection de Memphis?' asked the student, with an awkward air of a man who was devising a question merely for the purpose of opening a conversation. "'C'est la replied the man brusquely, nodding his head at the other side of the room. "'Vous êtes un Egyptien, n'est-ce pas?' asked the Englishman. The attendant looked up and turned his strange dark eyes upon his questioner. They were vitreous, with a misty, dry shininess, such as Smith had never seen in a human head before. 
As he gazed into them, he saw some strong emotion gather in their depths, which rose and deepened until it broke into a look of something akin both to horror and to hatred. Non, monsieur, je suis François. The man turned abruptly and bent low over his polishing. The student gazed at him for a moment in astonishment, and then, turning to a chair in a retired corner behind one of the doors, he proceeded to make notes of his researches among the papyri. His thoughts, however, refused to return into their natural groove. They would run upon the enigmatical attendant with the sphinx-like face and the parchment skin. "'Where have I seen such eyes?' said Vansittart Smith to himself. "'There is something saurian about them, something reptilian. "'There's the membrane and nictanes of the snakes,' he mused, "'bethinking himself of his zoological studies. "'It gives a shiny effect, but there was something more here. "'There was a sense of power, of wisdom, so I read them, "'and of weariness.' utter weariness, and ineffable despair. It may be all imagination, but I never had so strong an impression. By Jove, I must have another look at them. He rose and paced around the Egyptian rooms, but the man who had excited his curiosity had disappeared. The student sat down again in his quiet corner and continued to work at his notes. He had gained the information which he required from the papyri, and it only remained to write it down while it was still fresh in his memory. For a time, his pencil traveled rapidly over the paper, but soon the lines became less level, the words more blurred, and finally, the pencil tinkled down upon the floor, and the head of the student dropped heavily forward upon his chest. Tired out by his journey, he slept so soundly in his lonely post behind the door that neither the clanking civil guard, nor the footsteps of sightseers, nor even the loud hoarse bell which gives the signal for closing, were sufficient to arouse him. Twilight deepened into darkness. The bustle from the Rue de Rivioli waxed and then waned. Distant Notre Dame clanged out the hour of midnight, and still the dark and lonely figure sat silently in the shadow. It was not until close upon one in the morning that, with a sudden gasp and an intaking of breath, Vassitart Smith returned to consciousness. For a moment, it flashed upon him that he had dropped asleep in his study chair at home. The moon was shining fitfully through the unshuttered window, however, and as his eye ran along the lines of mummies and the endless array of polished cases, he remembered clearly where he was and how he came there. The student was not a nervous man. He possessed that love of a novel situation which is peculiar to his race. Stretching out his cramped limbs, he looked at his watch and burst into a chuckle as he observed the hour. The episode would make an admirable anecdote to be introduced into his next paper as a relief to the graver and heavier speculations. He was a little cold, but was wide awake and much refreshed. It was no wonder that the guardians had overlooked him, for the door threw its heavy black shadow right across him. The complete silence was impressive. Neither outside nor inside was there a creak nor a murmur. He was alone with the dead men of a dead civilization, what though the outer city reeked of the garish 19th century. 
In all this chamber there was scarce an article, from the shriveled ear of wheat to the pigment box of the painter, which had not held its own against four thousand years. Here was the flotsam and jetsam, washed up by the great ocean of time from that far-off empire. From stately Thebes, from lordly Luxor, from the great temples of Heliopolis, from a hundred rifled tombs, these relics had been brought. The student glanced round at the long, silent figures who flickered vaguely up through the gloom, at the busy toilers who were now so restful, and he fell into a reverent and thoughtful mood. An unwanted sense of his own youth and insignificance came over him. Leaning back in his chair, he gazed dreamily down the long vista of rooms, all silvery with the moonshine, which extended through the whole wing of the widespread building. His eyes fell upon the yellow glare of a distant lamp. John Vansittart Smith sat up on his chair with his nerves all on edge. The light was advancing slowly towards him, pausing from time to time, and then coming jerkily onwards. The bearer moved noiselessly. In the utter silence there was no suspicion of the part of a footfall. An idea of robbers entered the Englishman's head. He snuggled up further into the corner. The light was two rooms off. Now it was in the next chamber, and still there was no sound. With something approaching to a thrill of fear, the student observed a face, floating in the air, as it were, behind the flare of the lamp. The figure was wrapped in shadow, but the light fell full upon the strange, eager face. There was no mistaking the metallic, glistening eyes and the cadaverous skin. It was the attendant with whom he had conversed. Fancitart Smith's first impulse was to come forward and address him. A few words of explanation would set the matter clear, and lead, doubtless, to his being conducted to some side door from which he might make his way to his hotel. As the man entered the chamber, however, there was something so stealthily in his movements, and so furtive in his expression, that the Englishman altered his intention. This was clearly no ordinary official walking the rounds. The fellow wore felt-soled slippers, stepped with a rising chest, and glanced quickly from left to right, while his hurried, gasping breathing thrilled the flame of his lamp. Vansittart Smith crouched silently back into the corner and watched him keenly, convinced that his errand was one of secret and probably sinister import. There was no hesitation in the other's movements. He stepped lightly and swiftly across to one of the great cases, and, drawing a key from his pocket, he unlocked it. From the upper shelf he pulled down a mummy, which he bore away with him and laid it with much care and solicitude upon the ground. By it he placed his lamp, and then, squatting down beside it in eastern fashion, he began, with long, quivering fingers, to undo the care cloths and bandages which girded round. As the crinkling rolls of linen peeled off one after the other, a strong, aromatic odor filled the chamber, and fragments of scented wood and of spices pattered down upon the marble floor. It was clear to John Vansittart Smith that this mummy had never been unswathed before. The operation interested him keenly. He thrilled all over with curiosity, and his bird-like head protruded further and further from behind the door. When, 
However, the last roll had been removed from the 4,000-year-old head. It was all that he could do to stifle an outcry of amazement. First, a cascade of long, black, glossy tresses poured over the workman's hands and arms. A second turn of the bandage revealed a low, white forehead with a pair of delicately arched eyebrows. A third uncovered a pair of bright, deeply fringed eyes, and a straight, well-cut nose, while a fourth and last showed a sweet, full, sensitive mouth and a beautifully curved chin. The whole face was one of extraordinary loveliness, save for the one blemish that, in the center of the forehead, there was a single, irregular, coffee-colored splotch. It was a triumph of the embalmer's art. Vansittart Smith's eyes grew larger and larger as he gazed upon it, and he chirruped in his throat with satisfaction. Its effect upon the Egyptologist was as nothing however, compared with that which it produced upon the strange attendant. He threw his hands up into the air, burst into a harsh clatter of words, and then, hurling himself down upon the ground beside the mummy, he threw his arms round her and kissed her repeatedly upon the lips and brow. Ma petite, he groaned in French, ma pauvre petite. His voice broke with emotion, and his innumerable wrinkles quivered and writhed. But the student observed in the lamplight that his shining eyes were still dry and tearless as two beads of steel. For some minutes he lay with a twitching face, crooning and moaning over the beautiful head. Then he broke into a sudden smile, said some words in an unknown tongue, and sprang to his feet with the vigorous air of one who has braced himself for an effort. In the center of the room there was a large circular case which contained, as the student had frequently remarked, a magnificent collection of early Egyptian rings and precious stones. To this the attendant strode, and unlocking it, threw it open. On the edge, at the side, he placed his lamp, and beside it, a small earthenware jar which he had drawn from his pocket. He then took a handful of rings from the case, and with the most serious and anxious face, he proceeded to smear each in turn with some liquid substance from the earthen pot, holding them to the light as he did so. He was clearly disappointed with the first lot, for he threw them petulantly back into the case and drew out some more. One of these, a massive ring with a large crystal set in it, he seized and eagerly tested with the contents of the jar. Instantly, he uttered a cry of joy and threw out his arms in a wide gesture which upset the pot and set the liquid streaming across the floor to the very feet of the Englishman. The attendant drew a red handkerchief from his bosom, and moping up the mess, he followed it into the corner, where, in a moment, he found himself face to face with his observer. "'Excuse me,' said John Vansittart Smith, with all imaginable politeness. "'I have been unfortunate enough to fall asleep behind this door.' "'And you have been watching me?' the other asked in English, with a most venomous look in his corpse-like face. The student was a man of veracity. "'I confess,' he said, "'that I have noticed your movements,' and that they have aroused my curiosity and interest in the highest degree. The man drew a long, flamboyant, bladed knife from his bosom. 
you have had a very narrow escape, he said. Had I seen you ten minutes ago, I should have driven this through your heart. As it is, if you touch me or interfere with me in any way, you are a dead man. I have no wish to interfere with you, the student answered. My presence here is entirely accidental. All I ask is that you will have the extreme kindness to show me out through some side door. He spoke with great suavity, for the man was still pressing the tip of his dagger against the palm of his left hand, as though to assure himself of its sharpness, while his face preserved its malignant expression. If I thought, he said, but no, perhaps it is as well. What is your name? The Englishman gave it. Vansittart Smith, the other repeated. Are you the same Vansittart Smith who gave a paper in London upon El Cab? I saw a report of it. Your knowledge of the subject is contemptible. Sir, cried the Egyptologist, yet it is superior to that of many who make even greater pretensions. The whole keystone of our old life in Egypt was not the inscriptions or monuments of which you make so much, but was our hermetic philosophy and mystic knowledge, of which you say little or nothing. Our old life, repeated the scholar, wide-eyed, and then suddenly, Good God, look at the mummy's face! The strange man turned and flashed his light upon the dead woman, uttering a long, doleful cry as he did so. The action of the air had already undone all the art of the embalmer. The skin had fallen away, the eyes had sunk inward, the discolored lips had writhed away from the yellow teeth, and the brown mark upon the forehead alone showed that it was indeed the same face which had shown such youth and beauty a few short minutes before. The man flapped his hands together in grief and horror. Then, mastering himself by a strong effort, he turned his hard eyes once more upon the Englishman. It does not matter, he said in a shaking voice. It does not really matter. I came here tonight with the fixed determination to do something. It is now done. All else is as nothing. I have found my quest. The old curse is broken. I can rejoin her. What matter about her inanimate shell so long as her spirit is awaiting me on the other side of the veil? These are wild words, said Vansittart Smith. He was becoming more and more convinced that he had to do with a madman. Time presses, and I must go, continued the other. The moment is at hand for which I have waited this weary time, but I must show you out first. Come with me. Taking up the lamp, he turned from the disordered chamber and led the students swiftly through the long series of the Egyptian, Assyrian, and Persian apartments. At the end of the later, he pushed open a small door let into the wall and descended a winding stone stair. The Englishman felt the cold, fresh air of the night upon his brow. There was a door opposite him which appeared to communicate with the street. To the right of this, another door stood ajar, throwing a spurt of yellow light across the passage. "'Come in here,' said the attendant shortly. Vansittart Smith hesitated. He had hoped that he had come to the end of his adventure, yet his curiosity was strong within him. He could not leave the matter unsolved, so he followed his strange companion into the lighted chamber. It was a small room, such as devoted to a concierge. A wood fire sparkled in the grate, 
At one side stood a truckle bed, and at the other a coarse wooden chair, with a rounded table in the center, which bore the remains of a meal. As the visitor's eye glanced around, he could not but remark with an ever-recurring thrill that all the small details of the room were of the most quaint design and antique workmanship. The candlesticks, the vases upon the chimney-piece, the fire-irons, the ornaments upon the walls, were all such as he had been wont to associate with the remote past. The gnarled, heavy-eyed man sat himself down upon the edge of the bed and motioned his guest into the chair. "'There may be design in this,' he said, still speaking excellent English. "'It may be decreed that I should leave some account behind as a warning to all rash mortals who would set their wits against the workings of nature.' I leave it with you. Make such use as you will of it. I speak to you now with my feet upon the threshold of the other world. I am, as you surmised, an Egyptian, not one of the downtrodden race of slaves who now inhabit the delta of the Nile, but a survivor of that fiercer and harder people who tamed the Hebrew, drove the Ethiopian back into the southern deserts, and built those mighty works which have been the envy and the wonder of all after generations. It was in the reign of Tutmosis, sixteen hundred years before the birth of Christ, that I first saw the light. You shrink away from me. Wait, and you will see that I am more to be pitied than to be feared." My name was Sorsa. My father had been the chief priest of Osiris in the great temple of Abaris, which stood in those days upon the bubastic branch of the Nile. I was brought up in the temple and was trained in all those mystic arts which are spoken of in your own Bible. I was an apt pupil. Before I was sixteen, I had learned all which the wisest priest could teach me. From that time on, I studied nature's secrets for myself and shared my knowledge with no man. Of all the questions which attracted me, there were none over which I labored so long as those which concerned themselves with the nature of life. I probed deeply into the vital principle. The aim of medicine had been to drive away disease when it appeared. It seemed to me that a method might be devised which would so fortify the body as to prevent weakness, or death, from ever taking hold of it. It is useless that I should recount my researches. You would scarce comprehend them if I did. They were carried out partly upon animals, partly upon slaves, and partly upon myself. Suffice it that their result was to furnish me with a substance which, when injected into the blood, would endow the body with strength to resist the effects of time, of violence, or of disease. It would not indeed confer immortality, but its potency would endure for many thousands of years. I used it upon a cat, and afterwards drugged the creature with the most deadly poisons. That cat is alive in Lower Egypt at the present moment. There was nothing of mystery or magic in the matter. It was simply a chemical discovery which may well be made again. Love of life runs high in the young. It seemed to me that I had broken away from all human care now that I had abolished pain and driven death to such a distance. With a light heart, I poured the accursed stuff into my veins. Then I looked around for someone whom I could benefit. 
there was a young priest of Toth, Parmas by name, who had won my good will by his earnest nature and his devotion to his studies. To him I whispered my secret, and, at his request, I injected him with my elixir. I should now, I reflected, never be without a companion of the same age as myself. After this grand discovery, I relaxed my studies to some extent, but Parmes continued with redoubled energy. Every day I could see him working with his flasks and his distiller in the Temple of Toth, but he said little to me as to the result of his labors. For my own part, I used to walk through the city and look around me with exultation as I reflected that all this was destined to pass away and that only I should remain. The people would bow to me as they passed me, for the fame of my knowledge had gone abroad. There was war at this time, and the great king had sent down his soldiers to the eastern boundary to drive away the Hiskos. A governor, too, was sent to Abaris, that he might hold it for the king. I had heard much of the beauty of the daughter of this governor. But one day, as I walked out with Parmes, we met her, borne upon the shoulders of her slaves. I was struck with love as with lightning. My heart went out from me. I could have thrown myself beneath the feet of her bearers. This was my woman. Life without her was impossible. I swore by the head of Horus that she should be mine. I swore it to the priest of Toth. He turned away from me with a brow which was black as midnight. There is no need to tell you of our wooing. She came to love me even as I loved her. I learned that Parmes had seen her before I did and had shown her that he too loved her. But I could smile at his passion, for I knew that her heart was mine. The white plague came upon the city, and many were stricken. But I laid my hands upon the sick and nursed them without fear or scathe. She marveled at my daring. Then I told her my secret and begged her that she would let me use my art upon her. Your flower shall then be unwilted, Atma, I said. Other things may pass away, but you and I and our great love for each other shall outlive the tomb of King Kefru. But she was full of timid, maidenly objections. What is right? she asked. Was it not thwarting the will of the gods? If the great Osiris had wished that our years should be so long, would he not himself have brought it about? With fond and loving words I overcame her doubts, and yet she hesitated. It was a great question, she said. She would think it over for this one night. In the morning, I should know of her resolution. Surely, one night was not too much to ask. She wished to pray to Isis for help in her decision. With a sinking heart and a sad foreboding of evil, I left her with her tire woman. In the morning, when the early sacrifice was over, I hurried to her house a frightened slave met me upon the steps. Her mistress was ill, she said, very ill. In a frenzy, I broke my way through the attendants and rushed through hall and corridor to my Atma's chamber. She lay upon her couch, her head high upon the pillow with a pallid face and a glazed eye. On her forehead there blazed a single angry purple patch. I knew that hell mark of old. It was the scar of the white plague, 
the sign manual of death. Why should I speak of that terrible time? For months I was mad, fevered, delirious, and yet I could not die. Never did an Arab thirst after the sweetest wells as I longed after death. Could poison or steel have shortened the thread of my existence, I should soon have rejoined my love in the land with the narrow portal. I tried, but it was of no avail. The accursed influence was too strong upon me. One night, as I lay upon my couch, weak and weary, Parmes, the priest of Thoth, came to my chamber. He stood in the circle of lamplight as he looked down upon me with eyes which were bright with mad joy. Why did you let the maiden die? he asked. Why did you not strengthen her as you strengthened me? I was too late, I answered. But I had forgot. You also loved her. You are my fellow in misfortune. Is it not terrible to think of the centuries which must pass ere we look upon her again? Fools! Fools that we were to take death to be our enemy! You may say that, he cried with a wild laugh. The words come well from your lips. For me they have no meaning. What mean you, I cried, rising myself upon my elbow? Surely, friend, this grief has turned your brain. His face was aflame with joy, and he writhed and shook like one who hath a devil. Do you know whither I go, he asked. Nay, I answered, I cannot tell. I go to her, said he. She lies embalmed in the further tomb by the double palm tree beyond the city wall. Why do you go there, I asked. To die, he shrieked, to die. I am not bound by earthen fetters. But the elixir is in your blood, I cried. I can defy it, said he. I have found a stronger principle which will destroy it. It is working in my veins at this moment, and in an hour I shall be a dead man. I shall join her, and you shall remain behind. As I looked upon him, I could see that he spoke words of truth. The light in his eye told me that he was indeed beyond the power of the elixir. You will teach me, I cried. Never, he answered. I implore you, by the wisdom of Thoth, by the majesty of Anubis. It is useless, he said coldly. Then I will find it out, I cried. You cannot, he answered. It came to me by chance. There is one ingredient which you can never get. Save that which is in the ring of Thoth, none will ever more be made. In the ring of Thoth, I repeated. Where then is the ring of Thoth? That also you shall never know, he answered. You won her love, who has won in the end. I leave you to your sordid earth life. My chains are broken. I must go. He turned upon his heel and fled from the chamber. In the morning came the news that the priest of Thoth was dead. My days after were spent in study. I must find this subtle poison which was strong enough to undo the elixir. From early dawn to midnight I bent over the test tube and the furnace. Above all, I collected the papyri and chemical flasks of the priests of Toth. Alas, they taught me little. Here and there some hint or stray expression would raise hope in my bosom, but no good ever came of it. Still, month after month I struggled on. 
When my heart grew faint, I would make my way to the tomb by the palm trees. There, standing by the dead casket from which the jewel had been rifled, I would feel her sweet presence and would whisper to her that I would rejoin her if mortal wit could solve the riddle. Parmes had said that his discovery was connected with the Ring of Thoth. I had some remembrance of the trinket. It was a large and weighty circlet, made not of gold, but of a rarer and heavier metal, brought from the mines of Mount Harbaugh. Platinum, you call it. The ring had, I remembered, a hollow crystal set in it, in which some few drops of liquid might be stored. Now, the secret of Parmes could not have to do with the metal alone, for there were many rings of that metal in the temple. Was it not more likely that he had stored his precious poison within the cavity of the crystal? I had scarce come to this conclusion before, in hunting through his papers, I came upon one which told me that it was indeed so, and that there was still some of the liquid unused. But how to find the ring? It was not upon him when he was stripped for the embalmer. Of that I made sure. Neither was it among his private effects. In vain I searched every room that he had entered, every box and vase and chattel that he had owned. I sifted the very sand of the desert in the place where he had been wont to walk. But, do what I would, I could come upon no traces of the ring of Thoth. Yet, it may be that my labors would have overcome all obstacles had it not been for the new and unlooked-for misfortune." A great war had been waged against the Hyksos, and the captains of the great king had been cut off in the desert with all their bowmen and horsemen. The shepherd tribes were upon us like the locusts in the dry year. From the wilderness of Shur to the great bitter lake there was blood by day and fire by night. Abaris was the bulwark of Egypt, but we could not keep the savages back. The city fell, the governor and the soldiers were put to the sword, and I, with many more, was led away into captivity. For years and years I tended cattle in the great plains by the Euphrates. My master died, and his son grew old, but I was still as far from death as ever. At last I escaped upon a swift camel and made my way back to Egypt. The Hyksos had settled in the land which they had conquered, and their own king ruled over the country. Abaris had been torn down, the city had been burned, and of the great temple there was nothing left save an unsightly mound. Everywhere the tombs had been rifled and the monuments destroyed. Of my Atma's grave no sign was left. It was buried in the sands of the desert, and the palm trees which marked the spot had long disappeared. The papers of Parmes and the remains of the Temple of Thoth were either destroyed or scattered far and wide over the deserts of Syria. All search after them was vain. From that time, I gave up all hope of ever finding the ring or discovering the subtle drug. I set myself to live as patiently as might be until the effect of the elixir should wear away. How can you understand how terrible a thing time is, you who have experience only of the narrow course which lies between the cradle and the grave? I know it to my cost, I who have floated down the whole stream of history. 
I was old when Ilium fell. I was very old when Herodotus came to Memphis. I was bowed down with years when the new gospel came upon earth. Yet you see me much as other men are, with the cursed elixir still sweating in my blood and guarding me against that which I court. Now, at last, at last, I have come to the end of it. I have traveled in all lands and have dealt with all nations. Every tongue is the same to me. I learned them all to help pass the weary time. I need not tell you how slowly they drifted by. The long dawn of modern civilization, the dreary middle years, the dark times of barbarism. They are all behind me now. I have never looked with the eyes of love upon another woman. Atma knows that I have been constant to her. It was my custom to read all that the scholars had to say upon ancient Egypt. I have been in many positions, sometimes affluent, sometimes poor, but I have always found enough to enable me to buy the journals which deal with such matters. Some nine months ago, I was in San Francisco when I read an account of some discoveries made in the neighborhood of Abaris. My heart leapt into my mouth as I read it. It said that the excavator had busied himself in exploring some tombs recently unearthed. In one, there had been found an unopened mummy with an inscription upon the outer case setting forth that it contained the body of the daughter of the governor of the city in the days of Tutmosis. It added that on removing the outer case there had been exposed a large platinum ring set with a crystal which had been laid upon the breast of the embalmed woman. This, then, was where Parmes had hid the ring of Thoth. He might well say that it was safe, for no Egyptian would ever stain his soul by moving even the outer case of a buried friend. That very night I set off from San Francisco, and in a few weeks I found myself once more at Abaris, if a few sand heaps and crumbling walls may retain the name of the great city. I hurried to the Frenchmen who were there digging and asked them for the ring, they replied that both the ring and the mummy had been sent to the Bulak Museum at Cairo. To Bulak I went, but only to be told that Marriott Bay had claimed them and had shipped them to the Louvre. I followed them, and there at last, in the Egyptian chamber, I came, after close upon four thousand years, upon the remains of my Atma, and upon the ring for which I had sought so long. But how was I to lay hands upon them? How was I to have them for my very own? It chanced that the office of attendant was vacant. I went to the director. I convinced him that I knew much about Egypt. In my eagerness, I said too much. He remarked that a professor's chair would suit me better than a seat in the concierge. I knew more, he said, than he did. It was only by blundering and letting him think that he had overestimated my knowledge that I prevailed upon him to let me move the few effects which I have retained into this chamber. It is my first and last night here. Such is my story, Mr. Vansittart Smith. I need not say more to a man of your perception. By a strange chance, you have this night looked upon the face of the woman who I loved in those far-off days. 
There were many rings with crystals in the case, and I had to test for the platinum to be sure of the one which I wanted. A glance at the crystal has shown me that the liquid is indeed within it, and I shall at last be able to shake off that accursed health which has been worse to me than the foulest disease. I have nothing more to say to you. I have unburdened myself. You may tell my story, or you may withhold it at your pleasure. The choice rests with you. I owe you some amends, for you have had a narrow escape of your life this night. I was a desperate man, and not to be balked at my purpose. Had I seen you before the thing was done, I might have put it beyond your power to oppose me or to raise an alarm. This is the door. It leads into the Rue de Rivioli. Good night. The Englishman glanced back. For a moment, the lean figure of Sorsa, the Egyptian, stood framed in the narrow doorway. The next, the door had slammed and the heavy rasping of a bolt broke on the silent night. It was on the second day after his return to London that Mr. John Vansittart Smith saw the following concise narrative in the Paris correspondence of the Times. Curious Occurrence at the Louvre Yesterday morning, a strange discovery was made in the principal eastern chamber. The ouvres who are employed to clean out the rooms in the morning found one of the attendants lying dead upon the floor with his arms round one of the mummies. So close was his embrace that it was only with the utmost difficulty that they were separated. One of the cases containing valuable rings had been opened and rifled. The authorities are of the opinion that the man was bearing away the mummy with some idea of selling it to a private collector, but that he was struck down in the very act by long-standing disease of the heart. It is said that he was a man of uncertain age and eccentric habits, without any living relations to mourn over his dramatic and untimely end. The Captain of the Onion Boat by William Hope Hodgson. Big John Carlos, captain of the Santa, stood looking up at the long tapered window in the otherwise great, gray blank of the convent wall a dozen yards away. The wall formed the background of the quay, and between it and the side of the vessel was a litter of unloaded gear and cargo. The captain's face, as he stared upward at that one lonesome window, had an extraordinarily set expression, and his mate, a little lop-shouldered man, very brown and lean, watched him over the combing of the main hatchway with a curious grimace of half-sympathy and half-curiosity. "'Old man's got it bad as ever,' he muttered, in an accent and language that spoke of the larger English. He transferred his gaze from the silent form of the skipper standing in the stern to the long taper of the one window that broke the towering side of the convent. Presently, the thing for which the two men watched came into view, as it did twice daily, at morning and evening. A long line of half-veiled nuns, who were obviously ascending some stairway within the convent, onto which this solitary window threw light. Most of the women went by the window quietly, with faces composed and looking before them, 
but here and there a young nun would take this opportunity to glance out into the carnal world which they had renounced forever. Young, beautiful faces there were that looked out momentarily, showing doubly human because of the cold aesthetic garb of renunciation which framed them. Then were gone on from sight in the long, steadily moving procession of silent figures. It was about the middle of the procession, after a weary line of seeming mutes had gone past, that the mate saw that for which he waited. For, suddenly, the great body of the captain stiffened and became rigid, as the head of one of the moving figures turned and stared out onto the quay. The mate saw her face clearly. It was still young and lovely, but seemed very white and hopeless. He noted the eager, hungry look in the eyes, and then the wonderful way in which they lit up, as with a strange inward fire, at the sight of the big man standing there, and the whole face seemed to quiver into a living emotion. Immediately afterward, she was gone past, and more mutes were making the gray ascending line. "'Gord, that's her," said the mate, and glanced towards his master. The face of the big skipper was still upturned and set with a fixed, intense stare, as though, even now, he saw her face at the long window. His body was yet rigid with intensity, and his great hands gripped tightly the front of his slack jumper, straining it, unconsciously, down upon his hips. For some moments longer he stood like this, lost to all knowledge except the telling of his memory, and stunned with his emotions. Then he relaxed abruptly, as if some string within him had been loosened, and turned toward the open hatchway where the mate bent once more to his work. "'Why don't he get her out?' the mate remarked to himself. "'They've been doing that years and years, from what I can see, and ear and breaking their blessed arts. "'Why the hell don't he get her out? "'It's easy to see she's a woman, a sight more than a bloomin' nun.' in all of which the little crooked-shouldered mate showed a fund of common sense, but likewise an insufficient ability to realize how thoroughly a religious belief may sometimes prove a stumbling block in the pathway to mere human happiness. How a man of the stamp of Big John Carlos came to be running an onion boat must be conjectured. His name is explained by his father having been a Spaniard and his mother an Englishwoman. Originally, Big John had been a merchant of a kind going to sea in his own ship and trading abroad. As a youth, he had become engaged to Marvona Delia, whose father had owned much property further up the coast. Her father had died, and she had been an heiress, sought by all the youths about. But he, Big John Carlos, had won her. They were to have been married on his return from his next trading voyage, but the report went home to his sweetheart that he had been drowned at sea, and indeed he had truly fallen overboard, but had been picked up by a China-bound sailing ship and had been a little over a year lost to his friends before he had managed to reach home to carry the news that he still lived. For this was before the days of the telegraph, and his one letter had gone astray. When at last he reached home, it was to find sad changes. His sweetheart, broken-hearted, had become a nun at the great convent of St. Sebastian's and had endowed it with all her wealth and lands. 
What attempts he made to have speech with her, I do not know. But if his religious scruples had allowed him to beg her to renounce her vows and retirement and return to the world to be his wife, they had certainly been unsuccessful, though it is quite conceivable that no word had passed between them since she had put the world behind her. From then onward, through nine long years, Big John Carlos had traded along the coast. His former business had been dropped, and now he wandered from port to port in his small craft, and twice in every year he would come alongside of the little wharf to the great gray wall of the convent, and there lie for a week, watching year by year that long, narrow window for the two brief glimpses daily of his lost sweetheart. After a week, he would go. It was always a week that he stayed there by the old wharf. Then, as if that had exhausted his strength, as if the pain of the thing had grown in that time to be too dreadful to continue, he would haul out and away, whatever the weather or the state of trade. All of this the little twisted mate knew, more or less clearly, in detail, having learned it in the previous visit, which he had made with Big John Carlos, to the insignificant port where the convent stood. And she, what can the young nun have thought and felt? How she must have fought to endure the gray, weary months between the far-apart visits. And, day by day, glanced out the tall stair window as she passed in the long, mute procession for a sight of the little onion boat and the big man standing in the stern, watching, tense and silent, for that one brief glimpse of her as she passed in the remorseless line of figures. And something of this also the little crooked-shouldered mate had realized, vaguely, and had achieved an instant though angry sympathy, but his point of view was limited and definite. Why the hell don't he get her out? was his brief formula, and that marked the limit of his imagination, and therefore of his understanding. His own religious beliefs were of the kind that are bred in the docks, London docks in his case, and fostered in dirty forecastles. And now he was come down to this onion shunting, as he would have worded it. Yet, whatever his religious lack, or even his carelessness on a point of ethics, he was thoroughly and masculinely human. Why the hell? he began again in his continual grumble to himself, and had no power to conceive that the woman, having taken a certain step, might believe that step to be unretraceable. That usage, belief, and finally, bred of these two, conscience might forbid even the thought, stamping it as a crime that would shut her out from the joy of the everlasting. The joy of the everlasting, the little twisted man would have grinned at you had you mentioned it. Why the hell don't he get her out? would have been his reply, accompanied by a profuseness of tobacco juice. And yet, it is conceivable that the heart of the woman was, even this long while, grown strong to do battle for dear happiness. Her heart that had known silently and secretly and dumbly all along the unnatural wickedness of her outrage of her womanhood. Visit by visit, 
through the long years, her heart must have grown fiercely strong to end this torture which her brain, darkened with the clouds of belief, had put upon her to endure through all her life. And so, unknowingly, because of the loyal brain that would not be aware of the growing victory of her heart, she was come to a condition in which her beliefs held her no more than if they had been cords that had rotted upon her, as indeed they might be said to have done. That she was free to come, the little mate had seen, using his eyes and his heart and his wit. To him, it was merely a matter of ways and means. Physical. Why the hell was the puzzle? Why? With an angry impatience that came near to verging upon the borderland of scorn, the little mate would question inwardly. Was Big John Carlos bit with them religious notions same as other dagos? He did not understand the complaint or how it was achieved, but he knew as an outside fact that there was something of that kind which infected the people along the coast he traveled. If Big John were not troubled in this way, why the hell? And so he would return to his accustomed formula, working furiously in sheer irritation of mind. If he ain't religious, what is it? Can't he see the way her eyes blessed look at him? Can't he see she's mad and double mad to be out with him? Why did not John Carlos attempt to win back for himself the one thing that he desired in all the world? Maybe and I think that it is very possible, in the early years of his return he had so striven. But the young nun, shaken with the enormousness of the thought, hopelessly weighted with her vows, had not dared to think upon it, had retreated with horror from the suggestion, had turned with an intention of double ardor to seek in her religious duties the calm and sweetness, the peace and joy which she felt to be lost to her forever in any more earthly way. And then had followed the long years, with her heart fighting silently and secretly, secretly almost from herself unto victory. Arid the man, having lost the force of that first fierce unpenting of his intention to win her, and mayhap having been repulsed, as it would seem to his masculine mind, hopelessly, had fallen back under the sway of the religious beliefs, which ruled him in his more normal hours, and so, year by year, had withheld from any further attempt to win her, striving to content his soul with those two brief visits each year to the old wharf, each time to endure a mad week of those futile watchings for his beloved. Yet, in him, as in the woman, there had been going forward, without his knowledge, that steady disruption of religious belief, the rotting and decaying of all arbitrary things, before the primal need of the human heart so that the olden barriers of impossibility were now but as shadows that would be gone in a moment when next the force of his need should urge him to take his heart's desire. His first attempt, if there had ever been such, had been the outcome of his natural want, his love, 
but lacking the foundations of sureness of himself and of his power to withstand the future. Indeed, it is conceivable that, had he succeeded at the first and gained his desire, the two of them would have wilted in the afterblast of thought and fear of the hereafter, and in the fires of scruples which would have burned in their path through all the years. But now, whatever they might do, they would do, if it ever came to pass, with a calm and determined intention. Having done their thinking first, and weighed all known costs, and proved their strength, and learned the utterness of their need to be truly greater than all else that might be set as balance against it. And because of this, they were ripe, wanting only the final stimulus to set into action the ready force that had concentrated through the years. Yet, strangely, neither the man nor the woman knew, as I have shown, that they had developed to this. Their brains refused to know. Their consciences looked, each with its blind eye, at their hearts and saw nothing to give cause of offense to the ethical in them. Or did conscience catch an odd glimpse, with its seeing eye, of impossible wickedness? There followed hours of imagined repentance, deep and painful, resulting in a double assuredness within the brain, and manufactured parts, of a conquered and chastened heart, and of fiercer resolutions for the future torture of salvation. But always, deep within the unconquerable heart, fought for the victory that was each year more assured. And so, as you have already seen, these two, the man and the woman, were but waiting, the man for some outward stimulus to put into action all the long-pent force in him, revealing to him his actual nature, developed and changed in the course of the long years of pain, until he should be scarcely likely to recognize himself in the first moments of his awakening to this reality. And the woman, waiting subconsciously for the action of the man to bring her to a knowledge of the realities, to an awareness of the woman she had become, of the woman into which she had developed, unable any more to endure the bondage of aught save her heart that leaped to her ordering of Mother Nature. Nay, more fiercely and steadfastly eager to take with both hands the forbidden joy of her natural birthright, and calm and resolute and unblinking to face the future with its unsolvable problem of the joy of the everlasting. And thus were these two standing, as it might be said, on the brink of their destinies, waiting with blinded eyes, and, as they listened unknowingly for the coming of that unknown one, who should give the little push forward, and so cause them to step over the borderland into all natural and long-craved-for happiness. Who would be that one? Why the hell don't he get her out? The mate had asked the first hand, who knew all the story, having sailed years with Big John Carlos. But the first hand had raised his arms in horror and made plain, in broken English, his opinion of the sacrilege, though that was not how he had pronounced it. Sacrilege be jiggered, the mate had replied, humping his twisted shoulders. I suppose, though, there'd be an oly rumpus, eh? 
The first hand had intimated very definitely that there would be a rumpus, which, the mate ferreted out, might involve some very unpleasant issues both for the man and the woman guilty of such a thing. The first hand spoke, in broken English, as if he were the religious conscience of his nation. Such things could not be tolerated. His phraseology did not include such words, but he was sufficiently definite. Nice earthly lot of savages, you, the mate had explained after listening to such intolerant jabbering. Strike me if you ain't cannibals! And straightway saddled onto the unfortunate Catholic faith the sins peculiar to a hot-blooded and emotional people, whose enthusiasms and prejudices would have been just as apparent had they been called forth by some other force than their faith, or by a faith differently shaped and denominated. It was the little crooked mate who was speaking to Big John Carlos in the evening of the sixth day of their stay beside the old wharf, and the big man was listening in a stunned kind of silence. Through those six days, the little man had watched the morning and evening tragedy, and the sanity of his free thoughts had been as yeast in him. Now he was speaking, unlading all the things he had to say. Why the hell don't you take her out? he had asked in so many words. And to him it had seemed, that very evening, that the woman's eyes had been saying the same thing to the captain. As she looked, her brief, dumb agony of longing across the little space that had lain between, yet which, as it were, was in verity the whole width of eternity. And now the little mate was putting it all into definite words, standing there, an implement of fate or providence or the devil, according to the way which you may look at it, his twisted shoulder heaving with the vehemence of his speech. You didn't order do it, Captain, he said. You're breaking her up, and you're breaking you up, and no good to it. Why the hell don't you do something? Rescue her or keep away. If it's L for you, it's just as much L for her. She'll come like a little bloomin' bird. See how she looks at you. She's fair asking you to come and take her out of it. And you just stand in there. My gourd! What can I do? said the captain hoarsely, and put his hands suddenly to his head. He did not ask a question or voice any hopelessness, but just gave out the words as so many sounds, mechanically. For he was choked, suffocating during those first few moments, with the vast surge of hope that rose and beat upward in him, as the little twisted mate's words crashed ruthlessly through the shrouding films of belief. And suddenly he knew. He knew that he could do this thing, that all scruples, all bonds of belief, of usage, of blind fears for the future and of the hereafter were all fallen from him as so much futile dust. Until that moment, as I have shown you before, he had not known that he could do it, had not known of his steady and silent development. But now, Suddenly, all his soul and being lightened with hope. He looked inward and saw as the man he was, the man to which he had grown and come to be. He knew. He knew. Would she? 
Would she? The question came unconsciously from his lips, but the little twisted man took it up. Arsker! Arsker! he said vehemently. I knows she'll come. I seen it in her eyes tonight when she looked out at you. She was saying as plain as you're at. Why the hell don't you take me out? Why the hell don't you? You ask her and she'll come like a bird. The little mate spoke with the eagerness of conviction and indulged in no depressing knowledge of incongruities. Ask her, was his refrain. You ask her. How, said the captain, coming suddenly to realities. The little man halted and stumbled over his unreadiness. He had no plan, nothing but his feelings. He sought around in his mind and grasped at an idea. Write it on an atch cover, with chalk, he said triumphant. Lean the atch cover by you. When she comes, point to it, and she'll read it. Huh, said the captain in a strange voice, as if he both approved and at the same time had remembered something. Then she'll nod, continued the little man. No one else ever looks out of that window. Scarcely, not to think to read writing anyway, and you can cover it till she's due to show. Then we'll plan out to get her out. All that night, big John Carlos paced the deck of his little craft, alone, thinking and thrilling with great surges of hope and maddening determination. In the morning, he put the plan to the test, only that he wrote the question on the hatch cover in peculiar words that he had not used all these long gray years, for he made use of a quaint but simple transposition of letters, which had been a kind of love language between them in the olden days. This was why he had called, ha, huh, so strangely, being minded suddenly of it, and to have the sweetness of using it to that one particular purpose. Slowly, the line of gray moving figures came into view, descending. Big John Carlos kept the hatch cover turned to him and counted, for well he knew just when she would appear. The one hundred and ninth mute would pass, and the one hundred and tenth would show the face of his beloved. The order never changed through the years in that changeless world within. As the hundred and seventh figure passed the narrow window, he turned the hatch cover so that the writing was exposed and pointed down to it so that his whole attitude should direct her glance instantly to his question that she might have some small chance to read it in the brief moment that was hers as she went slowly past the window panes. The hundred and ninth figure passed down from sight, and then he was looking dumbly into her face as she moved into view. Her eyes already strained to meet his. His heart was beating with a dull, sickening thud, and there seemed just the faintest of mists before his vision. But he knew that her glance had flown eagerly to the message, and that her white face had flashed suddenly to a greater whiteness, disturbed by the battle of scores of emotions loosed in one second of time. Then she was gone, downward, out of his sight, and he let the hatch cover fall, gripping the shrouds with his hand. The little twisted man stole up to him. She saw, Captain. She ain't time to answer, not to know if she was on her head or her eels. Look out tonight. She'll nod then, 
He brought it all out in little whispered jerks, and the big man, wiping his forehead, nodded. Within the convent, a woman, outwardly a nun, was even then descending the stairs with shaking knees, and a brain that had become in a few brief instants a raging gulf of hope. Before she had descended three steps below the level of the window, even whilst her sight memory still held the message out for her brain to read and comprehend, she had realized that spiritually she was clothed only with the ashes of belief and fear and faith. The original garment had become charred to nothing in the fire of love and pain with which the years had enveloped her. No bond held her, no fear held her, nothing in all the world mattered except to be his for all the rest of her life. She took and realized the change in her character in a moment of time. Eight long years had the yeast of love been working in her, which had bred the chemistry of pain. But only in that instant did she know and comprehend that she had developed so extensively, as to be changed utterly from the maid of eight years gone. Yet in the next few steps she took, she had adapted herself to the new standpoint of her fresh knowledge of herself. She had no pause or doubt, but acknowledged with an utter startled joyfulness that she would go, and all was as nothing to her now, except that she would go to him. Willing, beyond all words that might express her willingness to risk, ay, even to exchange, the unknown joy of the everlasting for this certain mess of pottage that was so desired of her hungry heart, and, having acknowledged to herself that she was utterly willing, she had no thought of anything but to pass on the knowledge of her altered state to the man who would be waiting there in the little onion boat at sunset. That evening, just before the dusk, big John Carlos saw the hundred and tenth gray figure nod swiftly to him in passing, and he held tightly to the shroud until the suffocation of his emotion passed from him. After all, the rescue, if it can be named by a term so heroic, proved a ridiculously easy matter. It was the spiritual prison that held the woman so long. The physical expression of the same was easily made to give up its occupant. In the morning, expectant, she read in her fleeting glance at the onion boat a message written on the hatch cover. She was to be at the window at midnight that evening, as she ascended in the long gray line of mutes for the last weary time, she nodded her utter agreement and assent. After night had fallen thickly on the small deserted wharf, the little twisted mate and the captain reared a ladder against the convent side. By midnight they had cut out entirely the lead framing of all the lower part of the window. A few minutes later, the woman came. The captain held out his big hands in an absolute silence and lifted the trembling figure gently down onto the ladder. He steadied her firmly, and they climbed down to the wharf and were presently aboard the vessel, with no word yet between them to break the ten years of loneliness and silence. For it was ten years, as you will remember, since Big John Carlos had sailed on that voyage of dismay. Now, 
full-grown man and woman, they stood near each other in a dream quietness, who had lived on the two sides of eternity so long, and still they had no word. Youth and maiden, they had parted with tears. Man and woman, they met in great silence. Two grown and developed to have words over easily at such a moment of life. Yet, their very quiet held a speech too full and subtle, I and subtle, for made words of sound. It came from them almost, as it were, a soul fragrance diffused around them and made visible only in the quiet trembling of hands that reached unknowing into the hands of the other. For the two were full-grown, as I have said, and had come nigh to the complete awareness of life, and the taste of the brine of sorrow was yet in them. They had been ripened in the strange twin suns of love and pain that ripen the unseen fruit of the soul. Their hands met, trembling, and gripped a lone, long while, till the little twisted mate came stumbling aft, uneasy to be gone. Then the big man and the fragile woman stood apart, the woman dreaming while the big man went to give the little mate a hand. Together the two men worked to get the sail upon the small vessel and the ropes cast off. They left the first and second hands sleeping. Presently, with the light airs from the land, they moved outward to the sea. There was no pursuit. All the remainder of that night the small onion boat went outward into the mystery of the dark, the big man steering and the woman close behind him, and for a long while the constant silence of communion. As I have said, there was no pursuit, and at dawn the little twisted man wondered. He searched the empty sea and found only their own shadow upon the almost calm waters. Perhaps the first hand had held a wrong impression. The peoples of the coast may have been shocked when they learned. Maybe they never learned. Convents, like other institutions, can keep their secrets odd whiles. Possibly this was one of those times. Perhaps they remembered, with something of worldly wisdom, that they held the substance. Wherefore, trouble overmuch concerning of the shadow, of a lost nun. Certainly not to the bringing of an ill name upon their long holiness. Surely Satan can be trusted, etc. We can all finish the well-hackneyed thought, or, maybe, there were natural human hearts in diverse places, that, knowing something of the history of this love tale, held sympathy in silence, and silence in sympathy. Is this too much to hope? That evening the man and the woman stood in the stern, looking into the wake whilst the second hand steered, Forward, in the growing dusk, there was a noise of scuffling. The little humped mate was having a slight difference of opinion with the first hand, who had incautiously made use of a parallel word for sacrilege for the second time. The scuffling continued, for the little twisted man was emphatic. Sacrilege be jiggered! What the hell? The physical sounds of his opinion drowned the monotonous accompaniment of his speech. The small craft sailed into the sunset, and the two in the stern stared blindly into the distances, holding hands like two little children.
Well, thank you for listening to our stories tonight, and until next time.